This program is part of Film Geek Radio. Visit filmgeekradio.com for more great shows. A great hand reached out of the dark and grasped mine for a moment, mightily and tenderly. I said to myself, the veil between, though very dark, is very thin. Hello, and welcome to The Thin Place, the Film Geek Radio podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 28 for January 2013. Your hosts for this episode are Ken Moorfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin, that's me. And our topic for this podcast is The Grapes of Wrath, the 1940 film by John Ford, based on the novel by John Steinbeck. This is not a spoiler-free discussion, so if you have not yet seen the film or read The Grapes of Wrath, well... You go back to high school. I was going to say, you, <laughs> you haven't finished 10th grade English, so what are you doing downloading this podcast without your parents' permission? Todd, in looking at the film, we had talked a little bit about the way the film represents religion or spirituality and the film is framed with two conversations one at the beginning between Tom Judd played by Henry Fonda and Preacher uh, we call that the ain't you the preacher conversation and one at the end in which Fonda gives his iconic speech saying fellow ain't got a soul of his own just a little piece of a big one can you say something about either of those two conversations or how they work together? Uh, what kind of spiritual message or world is being portrayed in The Grapes of Wrath? Well, the I'll start with the beginning. In some sense, I think it's the one I understand more. And this vagrant, um, he recognizes as a, a an itinerant preacher, Pat Tom Joad, meets this guy. And they start having this conversation. It becomes clear that Casey, the preacher, um, had been, I guess what we would call today a Pentecostal kind of revivalist preacher who would go town to town, lots of baptizing, um, shouting and hollering, that sort of thing. And he says he lost the call. Um, he says that a preacher has to be sure of things, and he's not sure anymore. And because he's not sure, he can't be a preacher. And I think it's, a, it's an interesting kind of description of what a preacher, at least the popular picture of a preacher, is supposed to be. Somebody who has all the answers, knows everything. And as soon as he doesn't have that certainty, he feels that he no longer has the power of the Spirit. And yet... Something I find interesting in the film is that throughout the film, the family keeps looking to him as, well, you're the preacher. doesn't matter what you think. You were the preacher. You're now the preacher. Um, so it's, there's that interesting thing of the, the, the individual feeling totally uncertain about what's going on. Certainly has had his world rocked. And I think one of the things we can thematically for the whole film, I mean, this is about a whole people who were living life a certain way and have now had it totally knocked out from underneath them. And so it, it shouldn't be a surprise that the preacher also is wrestling uh, with that kind of uncertainty. But I, I guess, you know, in terms of spirituality, there is this big question of what part does certainty play in 
perfect. Right. That's interesting because one of the things I mentioned in our pre-show notes was that I found the film as a whole and the ending in particular to be more upbeat. One can say that about <laughs> than was the Stein. Then was the Steinbeck novel. Sure. And I think there's a certain measure of surrender in the novel. Mm-hmm. The Jode family holds on, holds on, keeps waiting for things to get better, but eventually is just overcome by circumstances, culminating with, in, in the novel, the famous sort of symbolic stillborn birth of Rosa Sharon's mm-hmm. child. I, I think the film ends more optimistically with mother giving a speech about the difference between men and women and how women take things more in stride, but I think there's there's and kind I think, of and I think in the film, on. Rose of Sharon hasn't given birth yet. Right, and uh, in the novel she does, and it's stillborn, right. and they go out into the flood to release the child, and kind of a Moses-like imagery, and then uh, in a very famous image, uh, they take shelter in a barn with a man who hasn't eaten in six days, and because he's sick, he can't take solid food, and Rose of Sharon nurses him because that's all they have and right. uh, some people find that an incredibly sacrificial imagery but there's also that rather disturbing almost vampiric imagery where it's like we've given everything that we own external to ourselves and now we're just giving of ourselves uh, but taking that back to the the preacher at the beginning and certainty i i think it's interesting that the film seems to be about a change of circumstances and yet there's never a surrender. Mm-hmm. The family never gives up or gives in. And yet the preacher or the, the religious mindset is the first to give up. And perhaps that's cynicism or irony where the people who are the most sure are the quickest to abandon, mm-hmm. uh, abandon their faith or something. But I think that it's, it's interesting that not just that there's this call to dogmatism or against dogmatism because there's plenty of 20th century attitudes towards religion that are anti-dogmatic, but it only is really bad to be dogmatic about religious things. It's not bad to be dogmatic or certain or sure about political things or sociopolitical things. I'm oh. sure the family ought to be together. I'm right. sure that uh, the bankers are evil <laughs> and the farmers are good. Well, and the other, you know, along those lines, what gets interesting with the preacher is, I guess in the beginning, he's not sure of anything. His arc, his development in the middle of the three quarters away through the film, he kind of falls in with some union organizers. And that becomes his certainty, his kind of his new truth. If you will, he's encouraging Tom. You've got to listen to these people. They've got, and they even they start putting the preacher up. People think that he's the leader because he's talking so much and you know he's working these things out. And in fact, in the end, sacrifices himself not so much for his religious principles, but for his political, new political uh, things. So the character seems to be a bit of drawn to that dogma. He, he wants that certainty, right? Um, in, in some sense, even regardless of where it comes from. Well, there's a line in the middle where he says, a preacher's got to know. 
Right. I don't know. I got to ask. And I suppose I can make an argument or a distinction between the preacher and the minister. Mm-hmm. A minister doesn't have to know. A minister is just called to visit the poor and tend to the sick and love the neighbor. You don't have to know. You just got to do it. Yeah. Although I will say my father is a minister. Okay. Um, and regardless of what he may feel, I know that his experience has been that he has to play the certainty that the, the people in his congregations have in some sense demanded that certainty. So I think, you know, that, that role of preacher is a very, it's filled with a lot of tension, I think, even today. So I, when I look back and I, and I watch, you know, Grapes of Wrath and I'm seeing this preacher, he's like, well, I'm not certain I can't be a preacher. I, I see that not just internal, but also externally motivated. Right. But what a, part of what I was driving towards earlier is that this doesn't, this film was released in 1940. Correct. So this doesn't strike me as a late 20th century existential atheistic film that certainty is bad and the preacher or the religious person is the prime emblem of that sort of certainty that we all just need to learn that we don't know anything. I do feel as though there is an articulation at the end, maybe in Tom's speech, that there are certain things that we do know, that there are certain people who know. And there are certain things that are knowable mm-hmm. and are presented as being true. It's not just relativism. It's, right. This is our value, our truth, our experiential knowledge of, of what we know. But it's no longer the religious person who feels them. And I think for me, that comes out biggest in uh, Ma's speech when she's trying to convince Tom to stay. Tom has decided that the best thing for everyone is that if he just leaves. But Ma, has, who has been the rock for the whole family from the very beginning, she's the one that holds everybody together, um, has this interesting speech where she, talk, she talks about the lack of certainty on certain things. When they were in Oklahoma on their land, things were certain. The family was clear, she says. Um, now all of that's changed. The family's no longer clear. There's all of this chaos. But it's the family that we know that. That's the thing that sticks together. That's the whatever else is going crazy. The family is what we know is true. And, you know, that, that's sort of, you can know that. You know, she knows that. She is, there is no question in her mind. And anything that takes the family takes Tom out of the family is bad. Staying is going to be good. And that sort of certainty is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and yeah, it's not a film that's saying that there's nothing to be certain about. I think in some sense it perhaps might have some competing claims for what is certain. Right. At the end, Ma also gives a speech that's markedly different than the end of the novel. She's talking to Pa. Mm-hmm. And... I'm not sure if it's the last line of the film or it's close to it, but she says, we're the people that live. They, and it might be worth talking about who they is. Right. They can't wipe us out. They can't lick us. Mm-hmm. And so the film ends to me on a very 
upbeat note, American people or the family is plucky. Right. It's perse- perseverant. Uh, but I really feel like Steinbeck toyed with economic determinism mm-hmm. that the forces of poverty, of big business, of government uh, are enough where, in, in fact, if they want to, they can wipe you out. Right. They can lick you. And that's the sort of revelation that the Jodes have to come to. Uh, and it's very painful in the novel yes. because uh, I know some people read the novel as being marginally more hopeful at the end because there's all this biblical imagery of the flood and after the flood comes the rainbow. Renewal or to say, at the very best to me, it's okay. You can't wipe us out means something different mm-hmm. than you can't lick us. You can't wipe us out meaning you'll never get rid of us entirely. You right. know, you, there will be a remnant that will survive and rebuild from that. But that's very different from they can't lick us. That right. that's more along the lines of we can take anything that it dishes out and manage to hold on to our integrity. Mm-hmm and our values and our moral and our purpose, even if we're not able to hang on to our farm. Right. Yeah, and and I think one of the things that we're running into is you know, something else we talked about in pre-show was the film, Grapes of Wrath, has these moments of, at times, almost unbridled optimism that, that poke out. And, and whether it's a speech like Ma or it's a music selection, even some of the visual you know, cinematography, it, there's this hopefulness at, at, at places, and at times I felt I found it jarring um, in certain places. Like it didn't, you know, the film didn't quite know exactly what it wanted to do. Right. I I'm not sure if I would take the word hopefulness, although I might have used it in the pre-show. <laughs> I, what I had said in in the pre-show is that I found the formal elements of the film pulling against the subject matter Mm -hmm. of the film throughout making me resist. And I'm not sure if it was hopefulness. I'm tempted at times to say beauty. Mm -hmm. Uh, The cinematography is done by Greg Tolan, who a year later did the cinematography, perhaps most famously for Citizen Kane, uh, who certainly is, has a very distinctive, visual Mm -hmm. style but there are ways of visually portraying poverty or starkness or barrenness that are beautifully composed images or uses of sound and light that don't capture to me the immersive tactile feelings of poverty Mm -hmm. and I don't mean that to be a, a knock on the cinematography, no, because it's it's wonderful, but I don't know that it's wonderful at contributing to a message that the film is trying to present. Mm-hmm. Is trying to present. I went after watching the film and just reviewed some of the. Depression era photography, a famous depression photography by Dorothea Lang. And 
there's a kind of weatheredness and a beatenness in the faces of her subjects right. that I think is missing from the faces of these particular people. Henry Ford wears overalls as Tom Joad, but I think about Dustin Hoffman famously talking about before he did Death of a Salesman of walking with a walker so that his body would be physically hunched over and would look like he's been carrying suitcases mm -hmm. around all day as opposed to just walking in and saying I've been doing that. And there's a sort of there's a sort of glowing quality to everything, including the poverty, that I found jarring, and yet I was suspicious of my own response in part because I know I like to be contrarian, and if it's got 100% in Rotten Tomatoes and won the Academy Award, then I have to be the person that's like, no, it's, it, it's not. But I don't think it's just me being ornery. Well, there was, there was one spot in the film where, as we were watching, I even wrote a note down that I, I, I felt that same kind of jarring. And it's, oh, in the first third of the film, the Jode family is being driven out of their farm by the, the corporation, by the bank. And they're, they've got this truck that they have loaded up with all manner of their, well, their, all of their belongings. You know, they've got 12 people littered throughout the truck. And they're concerned if they can even make it. I mean, it's been presented to us as this trial. This journey that they're going to take from Oklahoma to California is going to be a trial. And our first, so we, we get all that told to us. As soon as they pull out onto the highway, the cinematography is very bright. Up until that point, the I, I thought that the images were very stark and very um, dim grainy, grimy. All of a sudden now, things are bright. The music turns into this bombastic march. And it's, you know, it's like a an advertising chamber of commerce film on going on Route 66 through the Southwest. And it just was like, wow, what, what movie did I just step into? It didn't feel at all like it fit. Right. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, the family still feels hopeful. I mean, they've, they've got the handbill that says there's work in California. And yet, they're leaving their family farm that they've, it just, it felt, it felt wrong to me. There is that, that show versus tell dichotomy right. or problem. We certainly are told several times we see human sacrifices, I mean, not sacrifices, yeah. <laughs> we see the sacrifices of human beings of the, uh, oh, you eat this, I'm not hungry, because there's not enough food to go around. But maybe it's a little too episodic in the sense of we don't always see the consequences of then what it feels like to be hungry or what it feels like to be confronted with. <laughs> Uh, well, I, mean, I have this food right in front right. of me, and I am hungry. It, it's always at this kind of abstract level of, I, I understand what that gesture means, but I don't feel it in my bones. And, and even at the beginning of the journey, at the end of the journey, Grandma and Grandpa die. And, and we get the distinct impression 
with Grandpa that he died because he was being taken off his land. Grandma is, they get her to California and she dies. And even with those deaths, it, it, it doesn't, that feeling that you're talking about, it, it's like, oh, well, they died. They were old. It was an arduous journey. They didn't make it. It, it. But it didn't have that sort of emotional impact. Right. Or later on, at one point, they're going into a camp and they're trying to decide whether or not to stay or not. And he says, should I look someplace else? And Ma says, on one gallon of gas. Like, when we're down to our last gallon of right. gas, I don't know what we're going to do if we don't stop here. I don't know. I don't know where the next thing is coming from. And that's more than just a plot point where you've got to then say, oh, okay, stop. But there needs to be some sort of accumulation of hardship. Mm -hmm. And instead, I felt like there was just repetition. Uh, you know, there was one bad thing, and what what other bad thing could happen next? But I didn't get the sense that we get in life where certain things, you feel them more strongly because they come at the end of a long string where they've worn you deep, mm -hmm. where they've worn you down. Now, one area where I felt the film did give us some of those accumulated things was in the response of other people to them as they enter California and even at, well, even as they're going through the number of people who kind of look at them and are making like, wow, they're, are those people going to make it? I, and, and, and it's a mixture of, well, those people are brave to be going through the desert on that, with that truck. And then the other side of it being, well, they're not even human. Those Okies aren't human. Yeah. Humans, aren't made to suffer that much. And then when they do get to California, the townspeople, they're, they're driven out of towns. They're, sh you know, shunted. We do get that accumulation, I think in some sense, in the way that others treat them. But their responses just don't seem to well have that connection. In the desert scene that you were talking about, Tom Jode's response is, don't take no nerve to do something nothing else you can do. Yeah. And I understand the logic of that statement. I can parse that mm -hmm. statement. But I wouldn't have understood that's what he was feeling unless he had told me. Right. And when he told me, I didn't necessarily feel like, oh, I'm at the end of my rope. There's nothing else I can do. For some reason, I just popped into my head uh, the scene in uh, An Officer and a Gentleman where Richard Gere's Officer Mayo is, is uh being thrown out by his drill instructor or dropped out of the officer candidate program and he finally gets him to, to set up and say, don't you do that, don't you do that, and why not? He says, i got nowhere else to go. Mm -hmm. and, and there's just more of a sense of, of urgency or visceralness, just even remembering that one scene. Now, I, I'm not going to say that Richard Gere is a better actor than Henry Fonda right. or that there's situations where whose situation is quantifiably more dire, but there is something in the way that that's communicated in the narrative where I really felt like I believe him. Mm -hmm. I believe he is desperate. And in that place, it's like he's delivering a line. You know, maybe part of that's just because Henry Fonda has such a strong persona of perseverance and aptitude or whatnot that I, I can't quite picture him being 
Well, and I think this, at his wit's yeah. end. And this might, you know, another thing that we talked about in the pre-show a little bit was, and you alluded to it maybe a little earlier, is, I mean, this film was made in 1940, kind of the height of the Hollywood studio system. Officer and Gentleman is, what, 80s? Yeah, early and, 80s. But, it, you know, it's certainly not in, it, it's a different, it's a different generation of filmmakers. Right. And, and certainly some of the things that we're talking about, I wonder if it's part of that. It, it's a different era of filmmaking. There were different aesthetic values that were even different ways of approaching acting. That would have been acceptable at the time, or deemed this is what you do. That you know, maybe we're just here. We are now, two, three generations later in filmmaking. We've got different. Well, let's take a few moments and you know, towards the end, and try to talk about that a little bit because I think one of the things that we need to confront then is we've talked about some reservations or some ambivalent feelings that we have. It's worth reiterating, this is John Ford, right? This right. won the Academy Award for Best Picture. It's, I'm pretty sure, on the AFI list of, of you know, top 100 sure. great American movies. It's, it's iconic. Uh, IMDb has an 8.2 user rating. Rotten Tomatoes has a 100% fresh right. uh, rating. So... Clearly, this resonates with some. What does it do well, or what is it? Uh, what is it selling that people are buying, either at the time or in retrospect? I would conjecture. Okay. And and here's where we get into you know kind of the other kind of big. We we started off talking about the presentation of religion, and um, the bookending of religion. I would conjecture that the other thing that's being sold here use that terminology, is a, a myth of the American people. It doesn't matter what's thrown at us. We will persevere. We will survive. Ma's speech about the family, yeah, this, is, this is, as long as the family sticks together, we can do anything. We can survive anything. And that's, and that's a powerful image. It's a powerful Kind of story to latch onto. It doesn't matter what nature in you know the dust bowl and the drought. It doesn't matter what the corporations, you know, these unseen forces, financial forces that are driving us. It doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter what individual people who try to do bad things to us. What they do, if we stick together, we can make it. Um, and I think that that's a very powerful message, and I think that's a big part of what's resonating in this film. I, w I would agree. We've been dancing around the word myth. It's worth sharing, perhaps, that originally we were slated to do Young Mr. Lincoln in mm -hmm. conjunction with Steven Spielberg's Lincoln film, but there's some availability problems with that. Uh, but the notion of doing this rather than Young Mr. Lincoln had got me thinking about different kinds of mythologizing, sure. and particularly mythologizing the distant past in a way that we see more recently with Lincoln, with maybe to some extent Django Unchained, <laughs> uh, with Downtown Abbey, which is coming 
back for season three tonight and dealing with the more immediate past it's worth really thinking about that this is 1940 the depression isn't over right and so it there's a part of me that wonders okay is this about mythologizing the past or is this about mythologizing the present of selling a kind of ideology to people who are in there saying we are going to get through this we will make it through this and mm-hmm. we can make it through this which is so is it's kind of interesting to me because more recent examples of agenda driven filmmaking that deal with the global financial meltdown uh, i'm trying to think of narrative films that are what i would call more agenda driven or politically topical Movies like Rendition, right? You know that are about the war. Well, I haven't I haven't seen Zero Dark Thirty yeah. yet. Um, movies like Promised Land, which just came out, that are dealing with fracking and dealing with these issues that we're still going through that we haven't right. negotiated yet, doesn't seem to be a matter of mythologizing them, unless it's a matter of framing the mythology in a, such a way that's going to reinforce the argument that I want to make about this one particular topic. And I wonder then if that's almost a disservice on Ford's part, because Steinbeck in one sense is saying how really destructive some of these economic forces are, whereas Ford is then almost neutering the most stinging aspects of his critique and expose Mm -hmm. and saying, well, it doesn't matter how evil the corporations are. We, the individual has an unquenchable spirit. Right. The American individual has an unquenchable spirit. It, even in, this is a silly comparison, but even in It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey is driven to suicide. Right. And yet, you know, by the end of that film, you know, because... Um, he backs away from backs it, away and from the it. community helps him, and he finds right. a renewed faith. But there's an element of despair yes. of it. There's and there's certainly an element of a realization of my own powerlessness in the faces of forces, even if I don't acknowledge spiritual forces uh, that are great. My own powerlessness as an individual in the face of these huge economic, social, mm-hmm. and political forces that are so much greater than I am. Whereas that all gets reduced to me in a way that I find troubling of, well, we won't be liked. Yeah, and, and I guess there I, I might part with you a little bit in the sense that I think that the film shows us, I mean, these forces are, are real in the film. They are frustratingly abstract. I'm thinking of the scene when the they're about to knock down the Joads' home and the, the man driving the tractor that's going to knock down the home is a neighbor, and they are really challenging him. And, you know, he's like, hey, I got my own kids. I, I have to have a job. They're talking to some of the overseers, and they're like, well, they're like, well, who's doing this? Well, it's it's the bank. Well, who do, you know, they have the whole question of who do I go shoot? Right. Um, and, and there's nobody to shoot because it's just, it's these financial forces. But yet they are, they are there. And they are pushing this family around. I think that perhaps the some of the the very real consequences might be blunted in this film. 
by some of the things we've already talked about. Right. Um, I don't know that they're totally reduced. Well, I wonder, too, if the economics of film has changed to enough of a degree that I wonder who the audience is and who the audience is going to identify with because it's going to be hard to get a film-going audience to identify with the Joads to the extent of what well, we talked in the pre-show about the difference between poverty and destitution. Right. And if you're destitute, well, you're not going to movies about people who are destitute. Right. So then is this for the middle class so that you'll be sympathetic to the poor, but then we want to soften it so it's not quite as bad, so you don't feel as guilty? It certainly isn't for the rich to well, say, yeah, I mean, look at what... In the film, there is only one well-off person who is presented in any positive light, and that's the government guy um, who runs the, the government camp. You know, he's all dressed in white, and he's very yeah. kind and friendly. But there's, every, the, there's the one farmer who oh, yeah. warns them there that is the, the raid is coming because he says, maybe I'll get trouble for telling you, right. but you seem to be good workers, and I got nothing against you. So. Although even he's presented visually as being a bit more rough. Right. I mean, you know, he's a farmer. He's mm -hmm. not a bank owner. He's not, you know, one of these the corporate suits that are constantly shown as either having axe handles to beat people with or right. driving around in fancy cars. And, but he's on a different side of a divide. Yeah. And he is using them. And, I mean, now he's not being angry about it, like, you know, take it or leave it, you no. know, get out there as a but in many ways, he reminds me of the Christoph Walt character in Django Unchained. He says, well, I hate slavery, but it's convenient for me to have you do whatever you want. It's ideal, Ideologically, it may be one thing, but I got a farm. Yep. And, you know, I'm not going to pay you a dollar if I can pay you 50 cents. So, But at least I'm not going to treat you like you're nothing. I'm right. going gonna... to talk to you as a human being. And I'm going to, you know, give you information that will help you. Right. Um, you know, he very easily could have withheld that information or just not, told, you know, not withheld in the sense of, oh, I've got a secret. Mm -hmm. But just, you know, somebody told him, yeah, okay, and let him go. break up that farm, then I'll be able to pay for 25 cents. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the who the audience is, I think, is an interesting question. Because uh, it's certainly not the wealthy and it's certainly not the poor and destitute. Um, so then what is then what is the purpose? Well, and it may be one that we want to talk to question by saying we may want to revisit in future podcasts as I think we've introduced this notion of myth-making right. and mythologizing, and that gives us some avenues to explore in subsequent podcasts because I'm not sure that I really have an answer or that I'm ready to stick with it in answer. Uh, to that question. Um, overall assessments, I mean, I'm, I, I had some reservations. I found myself struggling against the film, but I can't be, I can't be the one guy that breaks the 100% <laughs> at Rotten Tomatoes and say thumbs down. I'm, I, I do think the film is maybe overrated or overvalued, but I can't, there's a difference between saying that and saying bad film. Uh, I mean, I, I think I, probably was more moved by it than you were. I mean, it, it's gorgeous. Um, the cinematography is just 
astounding, you know, the, that rich, wonderful, high contrast, black and white style that, you know, would go on in, to be rewarded in the next year in Citizen Kane. I think it's, it's absolutely wonderful. You know, the acting is, is really good. There's some fantastic speeches that get your blood going and it's, it, it's a great piece of American film history, certainly. It's uh, moving. And it's moving. I mean, by the end of it, you know, and Tom's like, we're going. I think of Longinus is on the sublime. He says the, you know, the end of poetic or elevated language is not persuasion, but transport. Yes. You know, it's not, I'm not out to convince you. I'm out to move you. And, and it's moving. Right. And it, it very much is. So I think, and you're right. I think it will, I think this is a good place to start thinking about this idea of mythologizing. You know, I think, I think you and I, at some, in another podcast, we need to talk a little bit about what that word means. Right. I constantly tell my students that at some point in the semester, I'm going to get in my soapbox and defend the word myth because it's been terribly abused. Right. Um, so. Okay. So, um, thank you, Todd. And listeners, if you have questions or comments or would like to offer a suggestion for another film about myth-making or mythologizing that you'd like to hear us wax on about, uh, please come by the web page. That's www.filmgeekradio.com, and our show is called The Thin Place. You can also email us at thethinplace at filmgeekradio.com. You can follow me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Moorfield. Or visit me and take a look at my reviews at the number one morefilmblog.com. This has been a Film Geek Radio production. Film Geek Radio! Yeah!